Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I am so happy that uh, the next couple hours, give or take whatever your time schedule allows, you can spend with me and I can spend it with you. I've got Rob Louie coming on in just a minute. I'm looking forward to talking to Rob. And then Dr. Greg Borgon is going to be chatting with me about part two of Jeremiah. And I'm excited about that. And then my friend, Dr. Tim Muehlhoff is coming on. He's got a new book called Author. He's the author of his new book, Eyes to See. Recognizing God's Common Grace in an Unsettled World. And then David Mathis will join me as well, talking about the paradoxes of Christmas. That's what's in store for today. Speaking of an unsettled world, Rob Louie lives in Washington, D.C., or works there, lives in the Virginia area, but I'm always looking forward to finding out what's going on in our nation's capital. He's the executive editor at The Daily Signal. Rob, welcome once again. Hey, it's good to be with you, Bill. Thanks, and sorry I'm on the phone today. Couldn't get the other connection to work, but it's always great to join you. That's no problem whatsoever. You sound great. Um, lots of stuff to chat about. It's obviously horrible to see what's going on in Kentucky uh, and with the hurricane, and very, very sad about all that. Yes, it's it truly is. I mean, for people to go to bed one night, uh, you know, expecting a peaceful night's sleep and then to to be woken up and and find themselves and their lives torn apart literally uh by these tornadoes is is just a, a horrifying moment i can't imagine being in that type of situation so our prayers go out to to all of the the individuals particularly those who are are, are dealing with injuries or um, who've lost loved ones uh but bill it's these moments when communities really come together mm-hmm. and i think the neighbors who who've stepped forward and other people who've traveled uh, to the affected areas to lend a helping hand certainly should be commended, and particularly at this at this time of the year, I, I think it, it's it's extra special. Um, and for for people who've lost uh, everything, um, they need their, our support right now. And so so finding the ways to to lend a helping hand, even if um, even those of us who can't can't be there uh, physically, I think that there are are you know obviously sites that you can can donate to, and make sure that these kids who are affected in particular have a have a merry Christmas. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that, Rob. Those are good words. Rob, what is your understanding of some of the crime that's going on in specific cities? And I watch the news and I see some of these uh, smash and grab and some of the uh, violence that's going on where store owners are boarding up their stores and afraid to let people in. And uh, what is what is your take on all that? Well, it's it's certainly troubling, and uh, and certainly it's something that we've now seen play out for almost a year and a half. You can go back to a lot of the riots that um, that, that caused damage dating back to the summer of, of 2020. And uh, at the time, we went through a big national debate, uh, a movement called Defund the Police, in which some cities took it quite literally and, and stripped resources from police who didn't necessarily have the manpower or the support to uh, to combat some of the, the crime that was taking place. And so it's troubling. It certainly is. And I think that it's been a wake-up call in some regards to remind people that this is why we have law enforcement. This is why the rule of law is important. 
Uh, but I think that there's a little bit more to the story here as well. There has been a movement afoot, a political movement, uh, backed by people like George Soros, uh, to install prosecutors in certain cities that basically decide not to uh, to, to penalize individuals for, for certain crimes. And I think if you take steps like that uh, without thinking about the consequences, you end up in a situation where uh, there are no um, ramifications or consequences uh, for those individuals who commit crimes. So I I'm encouraged on one hand because I think the, the newly elected mayor of Atlanta, uh, the newly elected mayor of New York City, uh, both Democrats took a different approach. Uh, they were surprise winners in both of their respective primaries because they decided to t- speak out about uh, the importance of law enforcement and, and protecting people and keeping them safe in their own communities. And that's, that's I think, a wake-up call to the Democratic Party and some members of it who probably went a little bit too far in advocating for positions that were out of the mainstream. Mm-hmm. And being safe in your own community, I mean, it's nice that the economy is bouncing back a little bit, but it's also kind of scary to think that if people don't feel safe to get in their car and drive downtown to shop in a store, they're not going to go. That's right. You're absolutely correct. Uh, they, they will, they will uh, stay at home. I mean, I think... First of all, you know, some Americans uh, still have fears about COVID and, and being in close contact with, with certain individuals, uh, you know, depending on the setting. And you add this to the, the, the mix here and, and not being comfortable, you know, walking, depending on what, what city you're in. And uh, frankly, I, you know, it's, uh, it, it, there are even parts of, of Washington, D.C. Uh, that are, are like this. I mean, you probably don't hear, you hear about the big cities like Chicago and Los Angeles. Uh, more so in the news, but I mean, it is affecting uh, cities all over the country, and 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 I'm hoping one of one of my hopes for for 2022 is that as as our country continues to recover and, and hopefully move beyond the pandemic, uh, we'll give people a new hope and opportunity, and there will be um, maybe. Uh, you know, people getting back to work. I mean, we, mm-hmm. we know, we know, historically speaking, Bill, that when people are caring for their family, they have a good paying job, they're not engaging in this type of criminal activity. And so I think if we can, can encourage people to, uh, to do that. But there's one other factor, it's something that you and I've talked about uh, a lot um, in our past interviews, and that's the role of religion and faith. I think that, you know, there is a, a new study that I, I just read about today and it was really, um, really troublesome in, in, in my mind. It, it showed the number of Americans who um, and their religious affiliation. And the number, this is a, a new poll from the Pew Research Center, Bill, and it shows that in 2007, uh, 78% of Americans, U.S. adults, uh, 78% affiliated with Christianity. Today it's down to 63%, mm. so 78 to 63. Uh, the number of Americans who have no religious affiliation has increased from 16% in 2007 to 29%. And I think that our churches, our, our faith helps keep us grounded. Uh, we were just talking about Kentucky and how neighbors were helping neighbors. I mean, it's that civil society that seems to be eroding in our country, and we we need to return to that. And I don't know, I don't have the answer for you. Maybe you you have some thoughts on it, Bill. But I, I do think that that's a part of why we're seeing some of these increases in crime, as people uh, who may have had those those connections to their community just don't anymore. No question, people are turning their back and people are walking away. And even my little community that I grew up in, Rob, which is this quiet little quaint charming little town that I grew up in, the grocery store that I, I went to as a kid and is still there, uh, had a carjacking in the parking lot at three in the afternoon. You think, really? In this little town? And at, at this little grocery store? 
in the middle of the day. And then there was another one uh, just across uh, town a little bit, uh, same store, happened in the afternoon. A person got their car taken right out from underneath them. I thought, boy, you're just going to the grocery store to pick up some food for your family, and you get your car stolen from you in a parking lot of a store that is in about as safe a community as you're going to find. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it, it can happen anywhere. That, that, yeah. is, that is for sure. I mean, one of the – I'm sure many of your listeners are, are users of the Nextdoor website or app, uh, however you do it, and it you know tracks the things that are happening in your local community. And, and you, know, you regularly see posts on there and in the past you may have dismissed it as teenagers you know just causing trouble but you know you you, sometimes you you question you know geez is is this really happening in my own backyard and uh, I think that that is that is worrisome particularly because we had grown accustomed over the what past decade to rise or to 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 the crime rate dropping and uh and you know we did not we did not see as many homicides or murders in big cities and uh with that trend starting to change and go in the other direction it's certainly a a pattern that we need to reverse and we need to figure out some solutions to to make improvements Mm -hmm. rob talk about some of the uh rogue prosecutors and some of the people that are are releasing prisoners that are uh, people that are are committing crimes and they're back on the street the next day Yes, and uh, thank you. Uh, our, our colleagues at the Heritage Foundation have published several pieces on the Daily Signal as part of a series documenting uh, rogue prosecutors. And so uh, the right credit really goes to, to Cully Stimson and Zach Smith, who have done the deep dive investigative reporting uh, to, to look into their backgrounds, uh, how they were elected to office, and some of the policies that they put in place. And so you can go from city to city, and I'll just Name one, for example, Rachel Rollins, who uh, comes from Boston. Uh, She has been nominated by President Biden to be a U.S. attorney. And this is particularly alarming because giving her more responsibility after seeing what she was uh, doing in Boston is is not the direction I think we should be going. Uh, George Gascon is is another one from Los Angeles, and he is uh, somebody who – is overseeing the situation that has really spiraled, spiraled out of control in that city uh, by in, enacting policies that do not enforce crimes that, uh, that frankly, for much of my entire life and, and long, long before that, um, you know, would be common, just common sense. You would want to prosecute somebody for engaging in these acts. And then right in my own backyard, literally my own backyard in Fairfax County, Virginia, Steve Descano, uh, has faced uh, recall campaigns uh, earlier this year, and uh, and the Virginia laws make it very difficult to actually recall somebody. But Descano is is an individual who these are. By the way, I, I mentioned this earlier, but I just want your listeners to know these are all individuals uh, who are who are representing very liberal or Democrat dominated uh, areas. And so what typically happens is there's a Democrat incumbent in office who is enforcing the law. And George Soros and other big funders come in and they support a challenger who is far to the left, and they unseat the Democrat. So it's not – it's not, this, isn't, this is hardly even a partisan thing. They didn't like what the Demo- other Democrat was doing because they were a law and order Democrat, and they put in place people like Steve Descano in Fairfax County, um, and they're not enforcing the law. And so that's what we mean by rogue prosecutors. And it's everything from drug crimes to uh, thefts and, uh, and other things that they say should not really rise to the level of, of punishing an, indivi- in the, an individual. But, Bill, at what point do you draw the line? Uh, because there are obviously people who are suffering at the, at the hands of these criminals. Mm-hmm. And then I saw in Chicago where the mayor was kind of going after businesses saying, well, maybe you need to work harder at protecting your merchandise. Yeah, 
I, I just <laughs> and I thought, well, do I get to pay fewer taxes if I have to hire my own security? And a lot of businesses have have resorted to doing that I know. Uh, because they they don't have any other option. And the other thing you're, you're seeing in places like San Francisco is the businesses are simply closing down. So like a Walgreens will say. We're, we're losing so much money on shoplifting that we're not going to even, you know, support. We're not even going to stay in this community because it's not it's not feasible for us to do so. And I think that that unfortunately hurts people who, in most cases, are probably in a low income neighborhood and and need that community store, whether it's to get their prescription medicine or just you know simply pick up groceries. And if they don't have those options. You know that that certainly is uh, is a big impact on their lot. No, I agree, Rob. And a lot of the times, those stores are are within walking distance. So now what? Right, right, exactly. Because transportation, you know, can be another issue that they they certainly deal with. So, yeah, there's there's n- no good that uh, can come of this. I I just really hope that, as I mentioned earlier, some of the changing politics will uh, get people to wake up and see the consequences of of you know these types of policies and. Uh, unfortunately, uh, a lot of people have had to suffer the the results of this, but maybe that'll change their voting behavior in the future. Yeah. Let me take a break. Rob Bluey is my guest. When we come back, I want to ask him about the Texas abortion case. He is the executive editor at The Daily Signal. We'll be right back. executive editor at The Daily Signal, and go to dailysignal.com. So, Rob, what is the latest update on the Texas abortion case? Yes, a surprise decision, at least in in my mind, uh, on Friday when the U.S. Supreme Court made its ruling on the Texas case. Uh, It was a surprise because I thought that perhaps they would wait until after they uh, made the decision on the Dobbs case, which is the Mississippi case. So Texas and the Mississippi have two different laws. Texas is the Texas Heartbeat Act. And that uh, basically at six weeks, um, it uh, defines uh, a human uh, life um, in a mother's uh, womb. And uh, Texas has a novel approach that they're using to enforce this law. So uh, it's been a challenge for abortion supporters to, um, to undo it as a result. It basically gives citizens in Texas the opportunity to bring a legal action against abortion providers as opposed to giving a government official. And so the Supreme Court uh, heard this uh, shortly after it was it was passed, and uh, and they allowed it to continue. And in this most recent uh, most recent decision, which came down Friday, it essentially said that it was leaving in place uh, the law, um, and it was uh, sending a message that uh, all lives are valuable, which I think is encouraging. Uh, but it probably is not the end of the legal fight. Obviously, we have the second case that is uh, going to be decided at some point, probably later. In, uh, at the end of the court's term in June of 2022, and that's the Dobbs case, which comes out of Mississippi, which is a different law, uh, which defines um, life as beginning around 15 weeks. And in that particular case, uh, the Supreme Court has to make a determination if it will overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, so it is uh, a lot of um, lot of anticipation. I think uh, a lot of prayers for those of us who are are pro-life that the Supreme Court will undo this horrendous decision that it made 48 years ago and uh, and finally uh, 
put life at the forefront of of what we believe in this country. And and Bill, the thing that the number that just keeps uh, sticking out to me, and I think you came up in the Supreme Court oral arguments, is that the United States is one of seven countries, along with China and North Korea, of all people of all places, that allows abortion uh, on demand up until birth, and that is just uh, horrendous. Um, and so I hope that. Obviously, we've come a long way in the, the technology and the science since 1973. My hope is that uh, the Supreme Court will take uh, an action here and, uh, and really uh, put us on a better track in the future. Rob, just to help people understand what the undoing of Roe v. Wade would uh, mean. Now, if it happens, would you explain what that means? Yes, exactly. So, uh, first of all, Roe v. Wade was a decision, uh, as I said, decided in 1973. Um, and then later there was a case, uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, decided in 1992. And those are the two big cases that the Supreme Court uh, has decided on abortion, which essentially uh, invented a right to abortion that doesn't exist in the Constitution. Uh, if Roe v. Wade is overturned, it would essentially go back to the states to decide uh, what their own policy is. And that's where we think it should belong, because what better place than the state legislature and voters holding their own lawmakers accountable for the laws that they have? And that's essentially what Mississippi did. And so the Supreme Court, uh, that would be the best outcome, at least in my opinion, is, is for them to, to make that decision, that determination. Uh, there are some worries that John Roberts, who did not side with the conservatives on the Texas case, uh, could try to find some middle ground. I don't know exactly what that would look like. Uh, it's hard to find a middle ground on an issue like this, Bill. Um, but essentially, for those people who are, who are you know, scaremongering, and uh, and trying to uh, to do everything they can to to whip up uh, uh, voter anger and uh, and and people to turn out in the polls next year, I think need to take a step back and understand that what it what it really means, and that's essentially that California will be able to determine its laws, and Mississippi will be able to determine its laws, as opposed to unelected judges uh, setting the setting the stage for the entire country. Mm-hmm. Be an amazing step forward uh, for pro life movement to have that happen. It certainly is, and and it's it's. I'm really encouraged by the fact that the Supreme Court is is taking up this issue. Um, as you know, the court takes very few cases uh, throughout the year, at least in terms of the number that go through our appellate court system. So it's uh, it's one of those rare opportunities that I think we have, and it's a moment that my my colleague and our former Attorney General of the United States, Ed Meese, said will be defining for. What, uh, what conservatives and Christians have been working so hard for over the course of the last uh, two generations in terms of uh, putting judges on the bench who have this opportunity uh, to, to take a, a close, hard look at the Constitution and make a ruling that is, uh, that is, is favorable to life. Mm-hmm. So what is going on with our continuing inflation? Are, are things going to get worse? And then I heard the word stagflation brought up. So you have some explaining to do, Rob. Oh, yes. Well, inflation is getting worse. Uh, it's the worst since 1982. And uh, I was a mere three years old that <laughs> I can't say I remember. Bill, but I can tell you, I, I've heard stories uh, from, from my parents. And uh, and I don't want to go back to, to, to that time um, when, when our country was dealing with those economic challenges. Uh, fortunately, we had a president at the time, Ronald Reagan, who understood how to fix the problem. I don't think Joe Biden does. And I'll point to his Build Back uh, Broke or Build Back Better, depending on your point of view, uh, proposal. 
and pumping more money into the economy at a time when inflation is already rising so rapidly at a pace of over 6% is not the, not the solution that we need coming out of Washington. Um, and any, any economist, I think, uh, will tell you that this is printing more money uh, and from the government is, is not the direction that we need to go right now. So it is a concern. I think um, past efforts to dismiss this as transitory. Uh, those days have long passed. This is, this is no longer seen that way. I think even, even some of the president's defenders in the media will acknowledge that. So it's, uh, it's a challenge, uh, particularly because people are experiencing as they're buying Christmas presents or getting ready for, for holiday gatherings. I know that, uh, that we see it here in our area, and I think that, as the data points out, um, it's, it's affecting uh, all Americans in one way or another. Mm-hmm. So we only have a couple minutes left, and maybe this is all the time that we should uh, put towards this um, subject. But Mark Meadows is in the hot seat right now, isn't he? He is. So uh, the January 6th committee is uh, voting. Has you know they they are, a couple of things. So the January 6th committee was established by Nancy Pelosi. Um, the Republicans wanted to put certain members on the committee. She rejected them, so the Republicans said they weren't going to cooperate. Uh, then she put Liz Cheney and Adam Kingsinger on the committee, neither of whom particularly likes Donald Trump. And so that's just to set the stage. So Mark Meadows, who was president's chief of staff, before that a member of Congress, uh, was cooperating with the committee up until a point, I think, of frustration. And, uh, and he, um, he was held in contempt of Congress. Uh, because they uh, said that they wanted him to give a deposition, and he refused to do so. Liz Cheney yesterday released a whole bunch of text messages that he had with certain members of the media and uh, and the president's son as January the January sixth uh, situation was playing out there at the U.S. Capitol. So uh, it's you know it, it's turned into a real partisan witch hunt, and I think it's it's being done purposefully. Uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, they want to do everything they can to discourage President Trump from run, for running for, for office again in 2024. And they feel that if they keep this in the news long enough, that'll remind voters of, of what happened. And I think, secondly, they're, they're, they're really tarnishing the reputation of a, of a really good man. I've known Mark Meadows from the time he served in the House and I, I collaborated with him on an event we used to hold called Conversations with Conservatives in the U.S. Capitol. And I can tell you that this is a, a person who, who's, who's caring about his, his, uh, his fellow citizens. He, he had relationships across the aisle, even though he was a strong conservative and a Christian. So, so it's really sad uh, to see them go after Meadows in this way. And I, I hope that, uh, that they will realize that, uh, that this is not something that the American people want us to, to focus on. I think we all know what happened on January 6th was terrible and awful, and, uh, and we wish that it didn't transpire the way it did. But uh, continuing to, to, to pursue this, this line is, uh, is probably not um, going to lead to anything that's uh, really going to benefit, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, the American people, Bill. So I, I, I don't know. I, I think that Congress has enough things on its plate that uh, this select committee can probably wrap up its work and, and move on to other, other matters. Yeah. Rob, thanks again. Always great to have you on the show, and I appreciate you very much. Thank you, Bill. You bet. Rob Blue has been my guest, executive editor at The Daily Signal. You can go to dailysignal.com. We'll take a little break. We'll be right back.
It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time, let's get it started. Jump in your car, what's for dinner? It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Last time Dr. Greg Borgon was in, we were talking about Jeremiah, and he came in, as he always does, with a very full plate of information. <laughs> and even though it comes through a fire hose, we needed more time to cover Jeremiah. So we're going to do part two. Uh, Dr. Greg Borgon is founder and president of Heart of a Warrior uh, Ministries.org. Greg, welcome. Well, it's good to be back. Good Thanks. Good to be back. I thought your first time through at Jeremiah was absolutely fascinating. I loved it. I went back and listened to the show, I think, a couple times. Oh, I appreciate that. I'm a that. slow learner, but it was really good. Well, you know, as we talked about before we were on the air, I, I just feel that many Christians have forgotten about this weeping prophet. I yeah. guess he should be called the forgotten prophet. <laughs> you and know, he's got so much to say to us. Yeah. And then, at, at you know, we talked about the fact nobody listened to him. Yeah. Uh, doesn't that resonate with everybody oh. in, to some degree? That Well, it's amazing. You know, for 40 years, uh, he was a prophet uh, to Judah. And ended up dying at the hands of the Jews, stoned in Egypt after he was either taken there or was exiled there. But he uh, overlapped the actual uh, captivity and the exile um, of Judah. Uh, And so he had a lot to say, but he suffered a lot as well. I mean, here's somebody that was so consistent for 40 years in his ministry, never having been applauded. So maybe it would be helpful uh, for us to just recap very Let's quickly uh, a little bit of the chronology to bring everybody up to speed. So the kingdom, as uh, you might recall, was united under Saul and David and Solomon. But at Solomon's death, the kingdom was split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, which consisted of 10 tribes, it was called Israel. It existed actually for 209 years before they were brought into exile and Assyrian captivity. And then you have the southern kingdom, the same time uh, when it split, but it lasted over 345 years, but it too went into exile in 586 B.C. under uh, Babylon, and Babylonian captivity, and under the Persians. But after 70 years under that uh, exile, the Jews... Uh, began to return or were given permission to return to the homeland in three different stages under the leadership of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. But his ministry as a spokesman for God lasted 40 years between 627 to 580 B.C., primarily again to Judah, beginning with the 11th year of King Josiah. As a matter of fact, he was a prophet over the course of five kings of Judah, uh, and that uh, went and came and went in his, in his lifetime. His ministry focused primarily on Judah, as we said, and he was a contemporary of the prophets of Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Daniel, Ezekiel. Mm-hmm. But his he labored for these forty years. I'm now his secretary Baruch wrote um, uh, a, a dictation of the Book of Jeremiah and also the Book of Lamentations. So two books in the Bible can be attributed to to Jeremiah. But um, he, again, was called the weeping prophet and received his name because he wept over Judah and Jerusalem. So the epitaph on his stone should be nobody listened. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That should be it. But the climate uh, of the times was similar to today. Society was deteriorating economically, politically, and spiritually. Wars and captivity were frequent. Boy, sound familiar, huh? Yeah, very. God's word was considered offensive. Isn't that amazing? And it is today. Yes. (laughs) So he was... He was poor and suffered greatly when he delivered his message. Just listen to this litany of sufferings. He was thrown into prison, dropped into a cistern, 
put into stocks, rejected by his countrymen and neighbors, falsely accused as a traitor, um, slandered by priests and prophets. He was forced to flee on more than one occasion. He was publicly humiliated by a false prophet and eventually taken to Egypt against his will. He often desired to resign, as you and I would, too, if we were given a mandate and nobody listened. Only half of those things have happened to me. (laughs) Only half. Only half, yeah. Well, you've got so much more to look forward to, Bill. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) But he often desired to resign. In God's eyes, he wasn't a failure, though. Uh, It was a different story. He was one of the most successful people in all of history. Uh, One commentator summarized his significance by saying, success as measured by God involves obedience and faithfulness. Regardless of opposition and personal costs, Jeremiah courageously and faithfully proclaimed the Word of God. He was obedient to his calling. He was the poster child for what I call a fat Christian. Mm -hmm. Faithful, available, and teachable, even in the midst of great travail. So you're measured by how faithful you are to your calling, according to, uh, if we look at the life of Jeremiah, even in the midst of trials and tribulations. So let's just briefly, ca- I think we got through the last time, Bill, five of the eight lessons that uh, we learned from the prophet. I think we just started on the six, but let me just recap them very quickly. First of all, there were five themes that um, Jeremiah spoke on regularly. There were sin, punishment, uh, God is Lord of all, heart renewal, and faithful service. So if you could actually see those themes all the way through his messages. Mm-hmm. So the first lesson we learn from his life and his um, preaching and uh, his prophecies was that, you know, don't settle for half measures in removing sin. When sin goes unabated, its shrill voice grows louder. Uh, You just can't go halfway uh, with sin. The second lesson we learned and we talked about last time I was on is we must answer to him for how we live. When it's all is said and done, we live our life really for an audience of one, don't we? Mm-hmm. And so we're going to end up giving, as followers of Christ now, we're going to be given an account before the judgment seat of Christ of what we've done with the faith and what we've been given by the Lord at the moment that we receive Christ. And he's expecting an ROI, return on his investment. The third lesson we learn from the life of Jeremiah is by following God's plans, not our own, we can have a loving relationship with him and serve him with our whole hearts, even though everything else around us is um, absolutely going um, to, to the dogs. Heart renewal. The fourth lesson we learned is we can have assurances of a new heart by loving God, trusting Christ to save us, and repenting of our sins. So God still restores his people. Jeremiah actually speaks about uh, a new heart and a change of heart. And then the The fifth lesson we talked about is we must bring God's message to others even when we are rejected. We must do God's work even if it means suffering for it. So those were the lessons that we kind of capsulized last time. Mm -hmm. Let's look at number six, the sixth one, which I think is pretty powerful. Um, The lesson we learn is to be faithful to our calling right to the end, just like Jeremiah. Now, what most of us don't realize is that we're all called to be ministers. We're actually, it says in Scripture, we've been created for ministry in Ephesians 2.10 when he says that God has declared a purpose in advance for us to do. We have been saved for ministry. We have been called to ministry. We have been gifted for ministry. We've been authorized for ministry. We 
We are accountable for our ministry. Uh, we will be rewarded for our ministry. We are commanded to minister. The body of Christ needs our ministry. And we are all ministers of reconciliation. So it doesn't matter if we've gone to seminary or not. We're called to minister. Greg, it seems like the word ministry in the minds of many people is a word that belongs to other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it I does. Don't do, I don't do ministry. I'm, I'm just this or that. Yeah, and, and if that's a struggle for people in terms of semantics, we're called to serve. Yeah. And that's what a minister does, really. Mm-hmm. And so we're called to serve in all of these different capacities. So in essence, we're without excuse. The interesting thing about calling, Bill, is that God calls us to service and direct correlation with our unique wiring, which has to do with our spiritual gifts, our natural abilities, our acquired skill, our personality temperament, our our level of spiritual maturation, our emotional maturity, our leadership capacity. That's our wiring. So when we think of calling, oftentimes we think, well, I'm called to be a senior pastor, or I'm called to be an associate pastor, or I'm called to lead a ministry, or I'm called to some location. I think that's the exception to the rule. No, we're called to go ahead and leverage God's unique wiring in us that can manifest itself in a variety of roles, in a variety of settings. So he may lead us to a particular expression of our calling um, or location. In the former, really, is an initiator. In the, in the latter, he's a, our partner. But just to go ahead and, and drive this point even more home, I think, we must be true to um, our design function and realize it can be expressed in many roles and in many settings. So your wiring, folks, in particular your giftedness, which, again, is your spiritual gifts, natural abilities, and acquired skills, can be expressed in many roles or avenues in many contexts or settings. So by way of a simple illustration, let's assume you have the spiritual gift of teaching, Bill, uh, an aptitude for learning and communication, and you have developed skills on how to put effective lessons together using learning theory and practices. So that's your whole package. So the wiring or function can be employed in a variety of roles, such as, you know, graduate education or preaching or leading a small group or fulfilling any number of ministry roles, a conference speaker, conducting a seminar, even mentoring somebody one-on-one, you're teaching, or authoring books or writing articles to mention just a few ways in which that, that gift or that function can be expressed. So it could also be employed in a variety of settings, such as the home, or school, or church, or seminary, or ministry agency, or organization, or even at large. Yeah, that should be very encouraging to everyone who's listening. Yeah. Yep. So you have a calling, folks, and your goal is to get in touch with how God's wired you, and then to be proactive through the power of the Holy Spirit to leverage that wiring to facilitate God's redemptive purposes in a fallen world. Sounds like you've said that before. Yeah, I have. <laughs> and so the whole idea is is to come to a realization that what matters to God are the hearts of people mm-hmm. and that the eternal consequences of us not leveraging our wiring mean that the mosaic is incomplete of God's redemptive plan. For some, again, you've heard me say this before, some unfathomable reason, infinite God has chosen us as finite creatures to facilitate his redemptive purposes in a fallen world. Go figure. Amazing. I mean, you Amazing. and I wouldn't have chose each other. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have chosen me. <laughs> but God has. But God has. And so in this time and age, folks, 
coming to clarity about how God's wired you, then finding ways in which to express it, avenues or roles in which to express it in a variety of settings will honor God. And when you appear before the judgment seat of Christ when he calls you home, you won't be embarrassed because you will be able to return more than you were given. Mm -hmm. And the return on investment will be a positive one. And you'll be honoring God. So everybody can go ahead and serve God in that kind of a capacity. So just in summary about this calling is we're called or set apart for the ministry of the gospel. That's our vocation. We express our calling in one or more professions. That's our, uh, our role. And we may be led to a particular situation or a setting. Uh, just the other day, I was uh, working with a number of men, and I talked to them about the fact that um, they are called, you know, they, they may have a role. Let's say, for instance, they have a role, uh, or someone in our audience has the adult pastor or a small groups pastor or a volunteer at a church, and that's what they feel they've been called to. And I tried to correct them, and I said, no, that's the role you're, you've been given an opportunity to fulfill, but you're really called to be a heart surgeon. Mm-hmm. You're really called to go ahead and perform surgery by the grace of God and through the power of his Holy Spirit and the lives of others so that their heart is renewed, that gives them new vigor and vitality to navigate an ever-darkening world. That's what we're all called to do. We don't need a seminary education for that. So our calling is initiated by God. Our profession is our response to his gifting, and we may be led to a particular situation or a setting. So here we have Jeremiah for 40 years fulfilled his calling. And there probably were times of second-guessing, why me, Lord? Why me? Nobody's listening. What results are, are there? I don't, I don't see any of them. As a matter of fact, all I'm getting is nothing but grief. But he honored God regardless. We, he honored him regardless. So the seventh lesson I think is important that we learn from the life of Jeremiah is to be at peace with obscurity. Mm, that's a great topic. I want to cover that when we come back from break. Dr. Greg Borgon is my guest. We're talking about Jeremiah. Say that one more time, Greg. The... What was the point seven again? Point seven is to be at peace with obscurity. Yeah, to be at peace with obscurity. All right, we'll be uh, (laughs) right back after a short break. music, Rosie, but Greg said, where's my gladiator music? <laughs> He's I, a little high maintenance today. I know, but it's Christmas. And yeah, you have such Christmas, amazing music. Bill, I have so much fun playing your Christmas music. All right. Dr. <laughs> Greg Borgon is my guest. We're talking about Jeremiah. And now we're at point seven, and that is to be at peace with obscurity. I want to hear more, Greg. Yeah. And one thing I want to clarify before we move on to this point, when I talk about being heart surgeons, uh, I don't want to leave the impression that it's all up to us. But we have to put ourselves in a position where we can be used of God, where the Holy Spirit can use our hands and use our mind and use our heart 
to help facilitate renewal in the lives of others. Even though that's the sole work of the Holy Spirit, He uses us as instruments, and that's what I meant by that. I appreciate that, because I think when I was listening to you say that for the first time, I thought, hmm, we're not the ones with the scalpel, where that's the job of the Holy Spirit, is to change and transform hearts. We're being used by God. Yep. But he trains us to use the scalpel. Exactly. Yeah, there okay. you go. Use the Word of God. Yes. Okay, there you go. So this is, this is an interesting one, this, this seventh lesson we learned from the life of Jeremiah, to be at peace with obscurity, because that's not the modus operandi of most people today. No, um, it's it's the accolades, and I think Rosie had said uh, uh, when we were off, off the, uh, off the uh, radio um, uh, about the whole thing about likes and everything else. That's what we're after, how many people Building are, your social um, media platform. Uh, yes, and all of that. But we need to be at peace with obscurity because there's one person that sees everything we do, and that's God, even though no one else may acknowledge it. So the whole idea is, again, at peace with this obscurity. Uh, Jeremiah lived his life for an audience of one. And so God's looking for, in my view, Bill, dangerous men and women who are willing to risk it all for his cause, followers of Christ who may never, ever receive a claim on this earth, but whose legacy is written on God's books for eternity. Years ago when I was teaching, I always come early, and I found in a podium this, tr- this interesting track. We, I didn't know who it was from at the time. It said anonymous, but I have tracked it down since. It was written by J.D. Watson. This might encourage our followers. And he says, and, and the name of it is, Others May, You Cannot. If God has called you to be really like Jesus, he will draw you into a life of crucifixion and humility and put upon you such demands of obedience that you'll not be able to follow other people or measure yourself by other Christians. And in many ways, he will seem to let other people do things he will not let you do. Other Christians and ministers who seem very religious and useful may push themselves, pull wires, work schemes to carry out their plans, but you cannot do it. And if you attempt it, you will meet with such failure and rebuke from the Lord as to make you sorely penitent. Others may boast of themselves, of their work, of their successes, of their writings, but the Holy Spirit will not allow you to do any such thing. And if you begin it, he will lead you into some deep mortification and will make you despise yourself and all your good works. Others may be allowed to succeed in making money or may have a legacy left to them, but it's likely God will keep you poor, if not uh, physically, certainly, spiritually, and maybe in other ways as well, emotionally, because he wants you to have something far greater than gold, namely a helpless dependence upon him, that he may have the privilege of supplying your needs day by day out of an unseen treasury. The Lord may let others be honored and put forward and keep you hidden in obscurity because he wants to produce some choice, fragrant fruit for his coming glory which can only be produced in the shade. He may let others be great, but keep you small. He may let others do a work for him and get the credit for it, but he will make you work and toil on without knowing how much you're doing, and then to make your work still more precious, he may let others get credit for the work which you have done, and thus make your reward ten times greater when Jesus comes. The Holy Spirit will put a strict watch over you with a jealous love, and will rebuke you for little words and feelings or for wasting your time, which other Christians never feel distressed over. So make up your mind that God is infinitely sovereign, 
being and has the right to do as he pleases with his own. He may not explain to you a thousand things which puzzle your reason and his dealings with you, but if you absolutely sell yourself to be his, he will wrap you up in a jealous love and bestow upon you many blessings which only come to those who are in the inner circle. Settle it forever then that you are to deal directly with the Holy Spirit and that he is to have the privilege of tying your tongue or chaining your hand or closing your eyes in ways he does not seem to use with others. Now when you are so possessed with the living God that you are in your secret heart pleased and delighted over this peculiar, personal, private, jealous guardianship and management of the Holy Spirit over your life, then you will have found the vestibule of heaven. Well, that's quite a, quite a message. Yeah. So if you're out there and you're ministering and toiling and nobody recognizes you, there's no words of appreciation, know this, that God recognizes you. Mm-hmm. And that if you're not honored in this life, you will be honored in the next. And so living a life of obscurity is what we're called to do in many cases. So don't despair. You're in good company, the fellowship of the obscure. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. So the eighth and final one, Bill, is endurance and persecution. Jeremiah persevered against many tribulations. So the enemy is increasing his assault on God's leaders. He, He wouldn't be attacking you if he wasn't concerned, you might become his formidable foe. I tell guys that I minister to all along, if you've got a target on your back, celebrate it, because the enemy never shoots at anyone he's not afraid of. <laughs> and so you're being attacked for a reason. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you're in his court. Why should he bother with right. you? So the world is getting darker, which makes whatever light you have all the brighter against a darker background. You've seen somebody light a lighter in a darkened stadium, and you can see it for a great distance. So even though you don't think your candle brightness or your lumens are that bright, um, it's interesting to note that whatever light you have is all the brighter against a darker background. In our culture, it's obvious. Uh, Paul describes the darkening in his own time, and I believe in our time in Romans 1, 38 uh, through, uh, 1, 1, 18 through uh, 32. Now, in observing our culture, Bill, I've, I've observed, the, I've noticed the following. Suffocation of morality, the epidemic of immoral behavior, death of reason, the growth of secularism, uh, vilification of Christians, the adulation of, of celebrities, the celebration of individualism, even celebration of, of, of things that dishonor God, a redefinition of tolerance is you firm or you accept whatever I do when the true definition of tolerance is to withhold whatever power you have against what you find objectionable. Rise of the anti-hero, the spread of violence, the proliferation of, of, of war, the ascendancy of, of radicalism, the racial volatility, volatility we're experiencing, even gender confusion issues. Yet even in the midst of this darkening, we find the uncompromised church, the hope of the world. In recent interchange on Facebook, I posed several questions to which people responded. I, I followed up with my response, and I'm not sure we have the time to go through them each, but it has to do with the prevalence of, of, of evil. And that evil does not reside as a virus or hang over you as a cloud. It must have a, a living host, whether an angel or a human being. 
And so if evil needs to manifest itself, the only way it can exist is by inhabiting us and we're born with it. Then the more people are on the earth, the more evil there is. Mm -hmm. And so it's concentrated and oftentimes in urban centers because that's where we're all kind of crammed together. So the whole idea is, is that Jeremiah felt that evil all around him, but he never stopped ministering for the cause of Christ, the cause of God at that point. And so consequently, uh, even in the midst of that darkness, the hope and the light of God can break through. Mm-hmm. Great study, Greg. Thank you so much for continuing our study on Jeremiah. And if you uh, missed any of this and you just jumped in your car, you're going to want to make sure you check out all of Dr. Greg Borgon's uh, discussion today on Jeremiah. It's powerful. And if you feel like you're not being heard and maybe you're ministering to somebody year after year after year, and they're ignoring you, you are in good company. Because <laughs> Jeremiah is in that camp. Yeah, let me just, can I just close one thing here, just to, to encourage people out there, if you're living a life of obscurity, God will honor you. Fantastic. What a great, a great message. Thank you so much, Greg. All right, we're going to take a little break. When we come back, hour two is just ahead, and I'm looking forward to talking to Dr. Tim Muehlhoff. He's written a book called Eyes to See, Recognizing God's Common Grace in an Unsettled World. And then David Mathis is joining me from DesiringGod.org, and he's written a powerful piece on the paradoxes of Christmas. That's all coming up in the next hour. Take a short break and be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.